Mark chapter 3, verses 22 to 30. I'll read the text for us, and then we'll get into the, to the message. It says, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. This is talking about Jesus. It says, And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. So the title of this message is, Is Jesus Working with Satan? Is Jesus Working with Satan? Sam Goldwyn, he's a movie producer, he used to mangle the English language so badly that his malaprops, that's not a word you hear often, you can look it up later, he, he, he used to mangle the English language so badly that his malaprops and mixed metaphors came to be known as Goldwynisms. Some, that have, some have become classics are Hopefully you, you understand what these are. It says, a verbal contract isn't worth the paper it's printed on. Every Tom, Dick, and Harry is named William. Now, gentlemen, listen slowly. Or how about this one? For your information, I would like to ask a question. Or include me out. Or even don't talk to me while I'm interrupting. And one, one last one. I may not always be right, but I'm never wrong. So if you're tracking, this is what we would call nonsense. This is what we would call nonsense. And this is the, the type of thing that we're going to see in our passage tonight. Right? What we'll see tonight from the scribes is a bunch of nonsense. A bunch of nonsense accusations against Jesus. The scribes, they're faced with a dilemma. Okay? The, the crowds are amazed at Jesus' works, yet the scribes have a deep-rooted hate for Jesus because he's taking away their authority and followers. However, they can't deny Jesus' powers to do miracles. So what do, what do they do? Since they can't deny his power, they decide to attack his source of power. They say Jesus is able to do everything that he does because he's possessed by Beelzebul. That's a reference to Satan. Satan himself is using Jesus as his very own agent. Jesus is just a tool in Satan's hands. This is what the scribes are trying to say. In other words, Jesus' power is real, which explains why he's able to do miracles, but the source of it is satanic. To that, we would say that's nonsense. And to remind you, the last message in Mark was titled, Is Jesus Out of His Mind? And we learned that Jesus' mother and his brothers didn't fully understand who Jesus was. Those closest to him were opposed to his ministry. They were convinced that Jesus had gone crazy, 
And tonight, we're going to see those, that, those who should believe in him, the religious leaders, the teachers of the law, they're also opposed to Jesus and his ministry. So in Mark chapter 3, verses 22 to 30, we'll see, the, we'll see opposition from the scribes that will reveal Jesus' authority over Satan and their hearts towards him. So we'll see three things, with the first being the senseless accusation, verse 22. It says, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. So what we find here in verse 22 is direct opposition from the scribes. We have here a senseless accusation. The scribes have had enough. There's no more messing around. Time to get straight to the point. Jesus, you're possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, you cast out demons. Notice, there's no longer any questioning, as we found earlier in Mark. In chapter 2, verse 7, the religious leaders were questioning, it says, within themselves, not even verbally. In chapter 2, verse 16, it says the religious leaders questioned Jesus' disciples. So there we see they questioned his disciples and not Jesus directly. In chapter 2, verse 18, the religious leaders questioned Jesus, but not about himself, rather about his disciples. In chapter 2, verse 24, the religious leaders finally question Jesus directly. And in chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, we have the account where they watched Jesus to see if he would heal on the Sabbath so that they could accuse him. And what does Jesus do? He heals on the Sabbath. And verse 6 of chapter 3, it says, they want to destroy Jesus. And now, in our verse, there's no more questions. We find straight accusations. And before we move on, let's back up a little and find out what led to this senseless accusation. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 22, we're told that there was a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute who was brought to Jesus. So let's just pause there for a second. This man that was brought to Jesus wasn't just blind. He wasn't just mute. He wasn't just demon-oppressed. He was all three of them, all three of those things. He was blind, he was mute, and he was demon-oppressed. So what does Jesus do? Matthew 12, 22 to 23 says, He healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? So Jesus heals the man who was once mute. He now speaks. Once blind, he now sees. Once demon-oppressed, but, but now no longer. All the people were amazed and said, Is this the Messiah? Could it be? Is this the son of David? Is this the long-awaited king of Israel? And the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees could feel the allegiance of the people turning. And we can already sense the hard-heartedness of the religious leaders. Why were they not amazed at what Jesus just did? And now coming back to Mark. Jesus does an undeniable miracle and the religious leaders are still opposed to him. Their hatred for him continues to grow, and they're looking for anything to accuse Jesus, even willing to falsely accuse him. And since they can't come up with any truthful charges, they have nothing to do except to senselessly accuse Jesus of working with Satan. They know Jesus isn't an imposter. They know Jesus is who he says he is. 
they're just unwilling to accept it and submit to Christ. Their reputation, their authority, their pride, their self-righteousness was too much to give up. Look at verse 22. Mark tells us the scribes came down from Jerusalem. These weren't the, just the everyday scribes. These were the, the, the big dogs. These were scribes from the capital city of Israel. And this was an official delegation coming down from Jerusalem with bad intent. They were expert teachers on the law. And these scribes didn't just travel a short distance. The journey from Jerusalem was more than 100 miles that they had to travel. It just shows how much they were opposed to Jesus and how much they hated him, willing to travel over 100 miles to accuse him. Again, their intent is to discredit and destroy Jesus. So let's take a closer look at, at this senseless accusation. And important to note is that this isn't directly spoken to Jesus, but it's in response to the crowds. Could this be the son of David? To that, we find the answer. So before the crowds, the scribes charged Jesus of being possessed by Beelzebul, which again is another name for the devil or for Satan. They also say that it's by the prince of demons that Jesus casts out demons. What we have here is the religious leaders claiming that Jesus is in league with Satan. It's Satan's power that's at work, not God's power. And this is really a low point for the religious leaders. They have no way to explain away Jesus' authority to do miracles, so they say that he's empowered by the devil. That was the best they could come up with. The scribes knew farewell that it wasn't true. They just wanted Jesus out of the picture. So this is a deliberate and calculated attempt to destroy Jesus' ministry. And notice that their accusation doesn't deny Jesus' power to do miracles. They don't deny that Jesus can cast out demons. They know he could. They've seen him do it. The evidence was everywhere. You wouldn't just hear about healings. You would actually see the healed person walking around. People were seeing these things firsthand with their very own eyes. They acknowledged Jesus' power, but they labeled them as satanic. To put it another way, instead of recognizing Jesus as the Son of God, the scribes senselessly accused Jesus of being a tool of Satan as someone who's aligned with the prince of demons, as someone who's nothing more than the devil's servant. So we learn something here. We learn that miracles don't necessarily lead to salvation. Jesus used miracles to authenticate his message, but as we clearly see here, even when people witnessed supernatural works, it didn't lead them to the Savior. Remember, Jesus is more than a wonder worker. He's the Son of God. Jesus is more than a physical healer. He's the great physician of the soul. Only he can operate on our sinful hearts. Yet how often we think we can do our own heart surgery. The scribes saw the miracles. They didn't doubt, th doubt them. They knew they were real. Yet their hearts were hardened even more. The question for us is, have, the question for you is, have you put your faith in Christ? You don't need to witness a miracle. You don't need to seek signs, wonders, or experiences. It's not a work 
that you need to see. It's a person you need to receive by faith. You've been given the word of God, which reveals how sinners can be made right with God through a sinless savior, Jesus Christ. So the scribes were unwilling to submit to Jesus's authority and rather than attributing his power to God, they attributed his works to Satan. Jesus is gonna take their senseless accusation and provide a sensible answer. That's the second point, sensible answer, verses 23 to 27. So in these verses, Jesus is going to take their accusation and point out that it's nonsense. It's illogical, it's foolish. Look with me at verse 23. It says, and Jesus called them to, to himself and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? So first thing, what's a parable? In, in his book entitled Parables, John MacArthur says, to put it as simply as possible, a parable is an Ill illustrative figure of speech made for comparison's sake and specifically for the purpose of teaching a spiritual lesson. In other words, it's a simple word picture illuminating a profound spiritual lesson. So while the scribes are speaking about Jesus, Jesus calls them directly to himself and speaks to them in parables. Remember, the charges were made behind Jesus' back in an effort to discredit him with the crowds. In Matthew 12, 25, it's, it tells us that Jesus knew their thoughts. He was aware of what the scribes were trying to do. And so now we'll see Jesus' Jesus's sensible answer to their senseless accusation. And we'll talk more about the purpose of parables next time, but for now we'll see Jesus using parables to expose the ridiculous charges of the scribes. So Jesus begins by saying, how can Satan cast out Satan? In other words, why would Satan work through Jesus to cast out the very demons he sent to possess other people? That wouldn't make any sense because Satan would be working through Jesus to undo his own work. And verses 24 to 26 is pretty much making the same point using different illustrations. So there's a kingdom, a house, and Satan. And notice the similarity of, of these three things. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. The NASB says, but he is finished. And in the NIV, it says his end has come. What's the point? The point is, if what the scribes are saying is true, if they're correct in their accusation against Jesus, then Satan's kingdom will not stand because Satan's kingdom would be divided. This shows us that their accusation makes no sense. If Satan were at war with himself, his divided kingdom would self-destruct and there would be no need for Jesus to cast out demons. Internal divisions, whether it be in a kingdom or in a house, don't strengthen the kingdom or the house. Internal divisions, rather, they don't lead to strength, but rather collapse. It's been said that a nation at war with itself cannot survive. So Jesus is saying to the scribes, if what you're saying is true, then Satan is destroying his own realm because it's clear that a kingdom divided against itself will fall. 
and a household divided against itself will not stand. So for the scribes, are they saying that Satan is fighting against himself with the result being that he's coming to an end? Of course, that's not what they're, of course not. Jesus points out the folly of the scribes' accusations. Satan would never empower Jesus to attack his own kingdom. So the scribes in their own pride and hatred of Jesus would rather reject common sense and reject the overwhelming evidence of who Jesus is than accept that Jesus is the Son of God. This was, this was the, a picture of their hearts, hard, unwilling, and refusing. Jesus, in verse 27, provides another parable. Look at it. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. So what does this parable tell us? Satan must be bound before his sphere of power can be challenged. The strong man here is Satan. The strong man's house is Satan's domain. The goods are people under the control of Satan. The only way Satan's domain can be entered is if he's first bound. Then you can free the people from his control. And only someone who is stronger than Satan can enter into his realm, bind him, and plunder his goods. So does anyone come to mind? Who can be stronger than the strong one? Jesus. Jesus' authority and power to cast out demons means that one stronger than Satan has come to restrain his activity and to release the enslaved. Jesus doesn't need to align with the devil. He's not working with Satan. He's more powerful. The fact that Jesus can cast out demons means that Satan has been bound and his house entered and his goods plundered. Everything Jesus did, from preaching to healing to teaching, was opposed to Satan's interests. 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So the explanation for Jesus' authority over the demons isn't that he was empowered by Satan, but rather that he has power over Satan. For example, Jesus won victory over Satan in the wilderness temptation, showing his authority over Satan. And as Satan was on the losing side of that wilderness encounter, so he always remains on the losing side. Also, we've already seen many instances in Mark of Jesus casting out demons, showing his authority over them. Jesus' power over Satan and his ability to cast out demons is proof, is proof that the kingdom of God is at hand. Matthew 12, 28, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Luke says something very similar. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Satan's kingdom isn't collapsing from internal division. Satan's kingdom, again, isn't self-destructing. Something else is happening. The kingdom of God is at hand. The one stronger than the strong one is overcoming Satan's kingdom, demonstrating his authority over all things and showing how nonsensical the accusation of the scribes was. 
The real reason Jesus is able to cast out demons is because he's been sent by God to bind Satan and liberate Satan's captives. It wasn't through the power of Satan that Jesus was casting out demons. It was through the power of God. Jesus entered Satan's house, overpowered him, and bound him. Someone said, in Christ, the master of the demons had found his master. But we, get, we can't forget this. Satan and his kingdom still exist and are still around, but it will come to an end. Remember, Satan is a defeated enemy with no power over a believer. Satan's reign is undone. It's over because of Jesus Christ, and all of this points to his final overthrow, which means there's coming a day for Satan's complete end, his final destruction. Revelation 20 tells us that after Christ returns to establish his kingdom, Satan will be bound for a thousand years. And after the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released for a short time before being thrown into the lake of fire forever. So if you were the scribes and you knew that Jesus was stronger than Satan, would you be trying to confront and condemn Jesus? Or would you be celebrating and embracing Jesus? And before we come down on the scribes too hard, let's give them some credit. They at least knew Jesus had to be good or bad, that he had to be of God or he had to be of Satan, that he had to be of the darkness or of the light. The scribes were smart enough to know that somewhere in between didn't make any sense. It was, it was either or, not some other option. How about for you? Do you think there are other options? You must make your choice. Either Jesus is the Son of God or he's someone else. Who do you say Jesus is? And if you say he's the son of God, have you submitted your entire life to his lordship? Hear and heed the words of Jesus from chapter 1, verse 15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus gave a sensible answer to the scribes' senseless accusation. He clearly shows us that he wasn't cooperating with Satan. Rather, he was in opposition to Satan. And Jesus now turns from a sensible answer to a serious admonition. Verses 28 to 30. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So we've already seen the scribes accuse Jesus of being possessed by Satan and by casting out demons by the power of Satan. And if you look at verse 30, it says, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. They're also saying, accusing Jesus, that he has an unclean spirit. Last time we learned that Jesus' mother and brothers said this about Jesus in Mark 3.21. He's out of his mind. Now the scribes are saying Jesus has an unclean spirit. So Jesus' family don't truly understand who he is. The scribes, in a sense, do understand, but rather reject him than embrace him because of their hatred toward him. 
However, Jesus doesn't return evil for evil. Verse 28 shows us the heart of Jesus. He provides the religious leaders yet another opportunity to repent and believe in him. He warns them for their own good. And he begins by saying, truly, I say to you, or truly, I tell you the truth. Assuredly, I say to you. This is an expression that we see for the very first time in Mark, but it won't be the last. Mark uses it over a dozen times, and it's, it always introduces authoritative words from the mouth of Jesus. So when Jesus starts by saying, truly, I say to you, it's always followed by something important and very serious. He says, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. That's a, that's a comforting truth that shows the extent of forgiveness. Scribes, crowds, the people, everyone sitting here tonight who isn't a follower of Christ, all sins and blasphemies will be forgiven. Every sinful act, every wrong deed, every verbal slander, every offense directed at God, every evil action committed against others will be forgiven. How is Jesus able to say that? How is Jesus able to issue that promise? Because he would take care of it personally. He would wipe all sin clean permanently with his blood shed upon the cross, the just for the unjust, the sinless for the sinful. Jesus is going to take the punishment that we've earned and deserved, and he's going to pay it in full and impute his righteousness to us. So Jesus can utter such words because he's going to remove the immeasurable distance between us and God by dying on the cross. God is a forgiving God, and he's providing an opportunity for the scribes to embrace him, to come to the end of themselves and repent and believe in him. He's providing them an opportunity to have all sins and all blasphemies forgiven. He's providing them entrance into the kingdom of God. Again, they can't deny his miracles, but they can and they do reject Jesus' offer of salvation. And we see Jesus' amazing promise is followed by a serious admonition where it says, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. So what's going on here? First, let me define blasphemy. In general, it means to speak reproachfully, to speak maliciously, or to speak in an impious manner. And when it's directed against God, it denotes hostile speech that's derogatory of God's honor and power. In other words, it refers to slandering others or being irreverent or defiant toward God. So we need to pay close attention to the context. So let's begin by looking at verse 30. It says, for they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. The grammar of the verb tells us that the scribes were re repeatedly saying that Jesus has an unclean spirit. It implies a fixed attitude of mind. But we know Jesus didn't have an unclean spirit as the scribes claimed he did. 
there was another spirit at work in Jesus, the Holy Spirit. Everything Christ did, he did by the power of the Holy Spirit. Christ was given a mission by his Father, and he did only what God the Father willed for him to do, and he did it in the power of the Holy Spirit. What the scribes did was attribute the works of the Holy Spirit through Jesus to the work of Satan, which Jesus calls here blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Jesus uses serious and strong language. He says that person never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. So the question we need to ask is why? The scribes saw the truth with their own eyes. They witnessed Jesus' miracles firsthand, and they deliberately chose to reject him, even when they clearly saw what Jesus did. They concluded that Jesus is of Satan rather than of God. So after having Jesus in their midst, seeing undeniable proofs of his miracle-working power, the scribes say, they repeatedly say, he's of the devil. They refused to acknowledge the power of God and the work of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' ministry. And that kind of willful, extreme hardness of heart, determined, settled opposition to the truth is what made them guilty of an eternal sin which never has forgiveness. And for the scribes, by ascribing the work of the Holy Spirit, which was accomplished through Jesus Christ, to Satan, they sealed their fate with their rejection. In Matthew's account, it says, whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. So the scribes were unwilling to believe in Jesus, and even more than that, they called everything that the Holy Spirit did in Jesus Christ demonic and satanic. That's the kind of hard-heartedness that will never repent. A commentator said this about the verse, there's no forgiveness here because such an attitude is incapable of seeking it. So what's the takeaway for us? Remember, the context is key. Jesus was confronting the religious leaders' deliberate rejection of that which they knew to be of God. The rejection had nothing to do with ignorance and everything to do with a hardened unwillingness to speak the truth about Jesus and to deliberately misinterpret, misinterpret the Spirit's work in a blasphemous way. We're not in the same position as the religious leaders. We haven't seen with our own eyes Jesus cast out demons or do any other miracle kind of work. So the question is, can someone commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit today? Well, not in the same sense as our passage, because to clearly see the works of Christ and to attribute them to Satan isn't something we can do. Jesus is no longer roaming the, the earth doing wonders and works. However, what you do with Jesus does matter. This warning from Jesus isn't only a warning to the people of his day, but it's also a warning to everyone who reads this passage. Either Jesus is who he says he is, or he's not. And your response to him is the most important thing about you. 
If you haven't repented of your sins and put your trust in Jesus Christ, listen to Jesus' words. All sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. William Hendrickson, a, a commentator, says, for a thief, an adulterer, and a murderer, murderer, there is hope. The message of the gospel may cause him to cry out, O oh God, be merciful to me, the sinner. But when a man has become hardened so that he has made up his mind not to pay any attention to the promptings of the Spirit, not even to listen to his pleading and warning voice, he has placed himself on the road that leads to perdition. With Christ, there's forgiveness. The blood of Christ cleanses all sin away. We learn here that sin isn't a light thing to mess around with. You might be thinking to yourself, well, I don't outright reject Jesus Christ. The truth is, if you don't come to salvation in Jesus Christ, you won't be forgiven because you'll die in your sins having rejected the message of saving grace. Jesus says, leave everything and follow me. It will cost you everything to follow Christ. If you reject Christ, it will also cost you everything. Steve Lawson said, it will cost you to follow Christ, but it costs even more not to follow him. He's talking about eternal conscious punishment in a real place the Bible calls hell. And in Hebrews, to take us to one more passage, it says, in Hebrews, we find another strong and severe warning to those who might fall away and apostatize. An apostate is an individual who has professed Christ at one point and departs from the faith. Someone moving away from an original position. And it's a purposeful, intentional, deliberate departure from a former position. John Owen defined apostasy as continued persistent rebellion and disobedience to God and his word, or total and final and public renunciation of all the chief principles and doctrines of Christianity. So listen to Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 6. It says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. John MacArthur, again, in his commentary on this passage, says this, Apostates, like the unbelieving religious leaders of Jesus' day, are those who have been fully exposed to the truth of the gospel and yet walk away from Christ in spite of the overwhelming evidence they have been given. At its heart, apostasy is a willful repudiation of the Holy Spirit's testimony to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Remember, any sin can be forgiven. But if you deny the person and work of Jesus Christ, there's no means by which God can forgive because you've denied the only way to salvation. And if you know what God's word says, don't continue to reject it. Don't harden your heart to the truth. Don't reject the savior of the world, Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin and turn to Jesus Christ. Now, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, 
This passage isn't meant to freak you out or to scare you. If you are a follower of Christ, nothing can separate you from the love of God. No one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. You're safe and secure in Christ. Listen to the words of J.C. Ryle. Those who are troubled with fears that they have sinned the unpardonable sin are the very people who have not sinned it. Another person said, anyone who is worried about having committed the sin against the Holy Spirit has not yet committed it, for anxiety of having done so is evidence of the potential for repentance. There is no record in Scripture of anyone asking forgiveness of God and being denied it. So we've seen in Mark chapter 3, verses 22 to 30, We've seen opposition from the scribes that have revealed Jesus' authority over Satan and their hearts toward him. The scribes senselessly accused Jesus of working with Satan, of being possessed by him and having an unclean spirit. They were unwilling to call a spade a spade. And Jesus tells it how it is by giving a sensible answer. And then Jesus ends with a serious admonition. So is Jesus working with Satan? Absolutely not. John Calvin says the whole of Satan's kingdom is subject to the authority of Christ. Christ is stronger than Satan. And because Christ has come, the end of Satan's kingdom has also come. Remember, this account is sandwiched between opposition from Jesus' family which was well-meant but misguided. And here we learn that Jesus is rejected and opposed by the religious leaders, which was malicious and hostile. This is a picture of Jesus' ministry, full of opposition and rejection. Jesus Christ is our suffering servant. He's the man of sorrows. He took on the attacks. He took on the accusations. And he didn't change his mission. He didn't go to the right or to the left. He didn't change course. He went straight to the cross to be our substitute, to take on the punishment for our sins. Nothing would stop Jesus from doing his Father's will, not his family and not the religious elite. Jesus has all authority. Jesus has all power. And Christ has come to make all things right. And his ministry and his works prove that he's the son of God. Listen, the kingdom of God is at hand because Jesus came the first time to inaugurate it. And he will come a second time to consummate it. We've already seen snapshots of it. Demons are expelled. The paralyzed walk. The lepers are cleansed. Withered hands are restored. Forgiveness of sins is offered. You must make your choice. Either Jesus is the Son of God or he's not. And your response to Jesus is the most important thing about you. Jesus was rejected on earth so you could be accepted in heaven. Do not reject him and do not reject the king and his kingdom. Let's pray.